Blog Talk Radio. Well, where do you stand on the contraception controversy? Is it really about contraception? And the economy is recovering as the private sector hires, so where are the jobs coming from and where are they? Well, these topics and more are here today on Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. I'm Patrick O'Heffernan in California, co-hosting with my friend and colleague Chuck Morse. He's on assignment in Florida. And we are joined today, as we always are on Tuesdays, by Deacon Michael Wanowitz of, of um, Sharon, Massachusetts. He's our resident uh, theologian, and we're talking religion and politics today. And we are broadcasting Monday through Friday from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. on Cyberstation USA Network, the Blog Talk Radio Network, and our radio affiliates. We are not being heard today on Cyberstation USA. They're undergoing a uh, equipment upgrade. They will actually play this show tomorrow, so they'll get us a day late, but uh, we should be on back on the air with them uh, in a day or two. Uh, it's February 21st. 2012, and we are pushing the boundaries of radio. We are listening to voices from all sides of the issues of the day. And uh, right now, I want to introduce you to my friend and colleague, our co-host, Chuck Morris. Hi, Chuck. How's Florida? Good, Patrick. How you doing? I'm doing well. I uh, I was talking, to, uh, did my pre-interview call to our guest today, who was in Washington, and she said, wait a minute, Chuck's in Florida, and you're in Los Angeles. She's the only one who's freezing. <laughs> is it cold up? Is it cold up in Boston? Yeah, no, she's in Washington. However, you know, Mike, you're there in in uh, in Boston, aren't you? Uh, yes, in the Boston area, in Walpole, it's uh, 42 degrees out where I am. Well, that's not that's bad at all. No, the sun, blue sky, very nice. Yeah, and no, and no doubt it's bright sun in, in Florida, and it's bright sun here in L.A. So anyway. Well, we all had a holiday yesterday. It was President's Day, and over the the weekend, I don't know if any if, if you two um, watched it, but there was a memorial service uh, at a Baptist church for Whitney Houston. Did either of you happen to watch the service on CNN? I watched it, Patrick, and um, I really enjoyed it. There was a lot of religiosity. It, it kind of brought up a lot of, uh, of Christian doctrine. I mean, to me, it was great. There was one particular preacher that I thought was very inspiring. Uh, I noticed that the Reverend Jackson was up there. I don't think he said anything, but there was one preacher, a younger man, who just was really dynamic. I don't know what that man has for breakfast, but boy, he was really—he really was moving that room. He was talking about Christ. He was talking about quoting from the Old Testament. Have a faith. I, I really enjoyed it. Mike, did you watch it? Uh, I did not see it. I, I <clears throat> heard about it and you know saw snips here, there, and on the internet, but I, I did not see it live. Yeah, I, I watched it too, and, and of course it was full of re- religiosity. It was in a Baptist church, and it was a religious ceremony, and she was a religious woman. But uh, I agree with Chuck. It, it was uh, exciting. It was uh, inspiring. It was uplifting. I thought uh, um, Kevin Costner was actually going to break down and cry. Uh, he came close to it, and uh, I thought it was. Uh, I'm glad that America had the opportunity to see that, and I congratulate CNN for broadcasting it live, and it was a a very inspiring uh, ceremony. Well, something else that's inspiring is it looks like Greece is going to get bailed out. We're not going to have to worry about that, at least I hope. Right. The Federal Reserve printing. (laughs) Well, this actually isn't the print. Federal Reserve, and, and apparently uh, Wall Street liked it too because the Dow hit 13,000 uh, on the news. 
uh, although there's a lot of controversy now over whether or not the Dow actually means anything. But, uh, you know, a, a lot of people in Europe are going, hope, hope this lasts. Uh, um, so it's, uh, we're starting the week off very good. But um, I noticed since this is Religion Tuesday that um, there was a story today, and Mike, you may have followed this, about strings being attached to growth of Catholic hospitals, religious strings. Um, did you follow that story? <clears throat> I did see the uh, lead story in the uh, front, uh, front page of the New York Times. I haven't read it carefully enough to uh, uh, to make an observation yet, but uh, I think the timing is kind of interesting given everything else that's going on around hospitals and Catholicism. Well, it it it, uh, it brings up uh, uh, something that has been, I, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong in this, Mike, since... Uh, you know about more about this than I do, since you're in the in the institution. In that, as as Catholic churches move into the secular world by uh, by uh, running hospitals and schools and things, um, they're more and more uh, finding that uh, they have to follow the laws in the secular world. You know, render unto Caesar those things that are Caesar's, and uh, uh, there are going to be. I don't know if you can call them conflicts, arguments, disagreements over what laws uh, pertain, but uh, um, I, 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 there must be a, a conversation going on inside the church about about this. Is there? Well, yes. Uh, it's the uh, the whole issue of what's referred to as uh, ethical religious directives. Uh, I know there was going back maybe two or three years, and we talked about this uh, one particular show, as I say, two or three years ago, we're in Phoenix, uh, the Diocese of Phoenix, Arizona. There was a hospital where a young woman was taken in uh, with a difficult heart issue. She was pregnant and the whole issue around what to do and so forth and so on. And so when things happen with Catholic hospitals where they're ministering not just to Catholic patients but to people who come in, from any kind of background, and then there are prognosis and diagnosis and so forth and things to be done. And, again, typically what's been happening, and now it's been exacerbated by this whole issue of the um, ACA and so forth and the health care issues, <clears throat> that hospitals are concerned about how to follow their conscience and yet provide good care. Well, of, of course, um, uh the Catholic Church does not have to go into the hospital business. That that's a voluntary choice that that it makes. Just like you know, we don't have to be in the radio business if we don't want to. But if we are in the radio business, we have to follow <clears throat> FCC regulations. And when we don't, um, we we get fined for it. So, Patrick, I think, let me weigh in on this briefly. Well, uh, Chuck, Catholic, we, we have, uh, hold on a second. We have to break yeah. for our um, our our radio affiliates and then weigh in when we get back. And I want, I want to welcome our radio listeners on 1490 WWPR in Tampa Bay and KSKQFM in Ashland, Oregon. I'm co-hosting today's edition of Fairness Doctrine from Los Angeles with Chuck Morrison, Boston, Massachusetts, although Chuck's on uh, assignment in Florida today. We'd like you to join us. Email us at fairnessradio at gmail.com, and you can also call us uh, 424 675 
5806. And for our Blog Talk listeners, you see the number right there up on your uh, your screen. So feel free to call us. But remember, if you call us, we are being heard on terrestrial radio stations. We do have to follow the FCC regulations. We cannot say the seven forbidden words. And we like to keep the conversation uh, something that you would uh, be happy to have your mother listen to. So uh, that's fairnessradio at gmail.com or call us. Uh, And you can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Okay, Chuck, sorry, I just had to do that. Go ahead. Well, we're talking about Catholic hospitals getting in the business, or Catholic Church getting in the business, I should say. Well, the Catholic Church has been in the business of hospitals and social agencies and care of particularly the poor for a long time, well over a century in this country, probably going well back into the mid-19th century, maybe even sooner. It's not like they're deciding to get in the business. They've been in the business long before the government started getting involved in regulating hospitals. And they are secular. I mean, they're Catholic, of course, and they have Catholic doctrine, and they certainly are run by the Catholic Church, but they're secular in the sense that they help all people always have, regardless of their faith, and um, have always had an outreach to the community at large, have always been of service to the community at large. And I would argue that their service is at least as good as any other um, entity that's in the business of uh, hospitals and social services, probably a lot better. Well, I wouldn't dispute that. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if that uh, the, that there have been two centuries or a century of non-regulation. I think hospitals have always had some government oversight uh, of some kind. At least I would hope they have. But no, I, I agree with you. They give the some of the best care in the world. St. Joseph's uh, here in Los Angeles is a, is a good example of that. And my mother was there for a while. But nevertheless, as you say, they are in the business. It's a secular business. And uh, wonder what Mike says about that. Does, does the Catholic Church dispute the fact or, or, or dispute the argument that once you get into a secular business, you have to obey the secular laws? <clears throat> well, I think that raises that question, which I was finishing on uh, just a, a minute or two ago, relative to doing things which are against the doctrine issues that the Catholic Church espouses. And that's the whole concern uh, that says that if, for example, in the case of Catholic charities, as another example, in the whole business of adopting uh, uh, gay, lesbian parents, adopting children, and whether or not that's either A, permitted by the church, and what to do when this is coming up, uh, the church does make decisions about whether or not to be involved in certain activities if it's going to be, again, contrary to the doctrinal issues involved. And thus we see Catholic charities in different places opting out of the adoption business altogether. When it comes to hospitals who are performing certain routines uh, and somebody would like to have a procedure done which, again, is contrary to the church, uh, then both the individual and the church have an issue uh, as to what to do. So well, this I, does raise this whole the so-called exemption uh, and religious liberty issues, which uh, at the at the heart, I believe, the heart of what's happening today with uh, ACA. Well, I by the way, Patrick, there's also a freedom of conscience issue even in secular hospitals. Like for example, um, when, when uh, the hospital wanted to vaccinate my preborn daughter with eight vaccines while she was still in the NICU unit, um, we were allowed to take a religious exemption, even though it had nothing to do with our religion. 
uh, and not have her vaccinated, even though that was the state policy. So I think that there are, you know, the, the whole concept of religious exemption and particularly with regard to Catholic hospitals observing Catholic doctrine, I think that society expects Catholic hospitals to do that, to be Catholic, to observe their Catholic doctrine, and when they do so, they're defending the rights of everybody. They're defending the rights of Catholics, non-Catholics, atheists, secular, to have a more, have a conscious exemption. Now, that doesn't mean that a hospital, like a Muslim hospital, can engage in honor killings. I mean, that's, you know, that, not that they do, they don't. But, uh, you know, I'm saying that there are certainly, you know, extreme examples where a religious doctrine would not apply. But in general, our society has been very willing to lean in the direction of conscientious objection and, and religious freedom. Well, I think the facts uh, dispute that, uh, and we'll be able to discuss that with our next guest, but I would like to point out you're mixing two things up, Chuck. Uh, we're talking about what the hospitals do, not what you do. In that case, the, the hospitals uh, recognize that you have a freedom to make, to make the decision. You're an indiv individual citizen. Mm -hmm. The hospital itself is in business. It's in a secular business, and it has to b obey the business laws. We're not talking about your freedoms as a parent to make decisions. We're talking about their obligation to follow the law if they choose to be in a secular business. And those are two, separate, well, Patrick, two as, totally separate things. Said, no, I don't think and, so. Uh, what, just second, you're, said, you're interrupting me, Chuck. I didn't interrupt you. Well, you know, you've uh, you're interrupting me again, Chuck, and I didn't interrupt you. There's a, there's a big difference there between what the individual does and what the institution does. You're not covered by, by uh, business laws because you're not in that business. They are covered yeah, by those business laws. They are, they are taking advantage of the taxpayer-paid infrastructure, the inspections, the certifications, and all the other things that the government beside, uh, provides that the taxpayers <clears throat> pay for. And if they're going to, if they're going to take advantage of that, they're going to be in a secular business, they have to play by the secular rules. They can't have their cake and eat it, too. If they don't like the rules, they have to get out of the business. You've mischaracterized what I've said again, Patrick, and I will repeat it. It's not just a matter of individuals having a conscientious objection, a moral objection. People expect Catholic hospitals to, within reason, engage in a conscientious objection and an immoral objection and observe their doctrines because we all want to make sure that our, not only ourselves, but our institutions have the maximum opportunity to do that. And that, I think, is something that is generally understood by most people who respect not only um, conscientious objection, whether they personally agree with those objections or not, but the concept of individual of religious freedom for institutions and individuals. So I think I hope I was clear about that. I think I'm a pretty good communicator, and I know that I've just had to repeat myself. But that's well, the point that I'm making here. Uh, I, actually, I disagree with you, and would challenge you to come up with data that says that most people expect Catholic hospitals to to do what you said they do. I disagree with that. I think most people expect. Catholic hospitals to follow the law of the land, that they don't get an exemption just because they're Catholic. They have to, they're hospitals, they're in the business, they're collecting money, they're using taxpayers' resources, they're taking taxpayers' money and, and Medicaid, and they have to follow the law. And I don't see any data yeah, that right. shows that most people don't expect them to. I think that the reason well, we're Patrick, having this discussion is that most people do expect them to. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's data that indicates that people expect Catholic <laughs> hospitals to be forced to do something against their will or that they are, have a right to be exempted. I'm not sure there's data on either side, but the principle is an American principle, and that is I, that individuals and, excuse me, and the private companies, even if they're in our present political situation having to take things like Medicare and whatnot, 
there is a there's an understanding among <laughs> I think most American people I can't prove this, but it certainly is consistent with American philosophy and our political way of life that you give the maximum amount of freedom to institutions to abide by their particular moral strictures, whether we agree with them or not, because we want to have that same freedom for ourselves, because we want to have that same freedom for our institutions. It's a generally an understood thing. Now, I don't have data to prove that, but I think I could argue concisely that that is the American way. Well, I think that's your opinion, uh, not the American way, but we have to take a break now and bring in our guest. We can continue this discussion. Hold on, everybody. Janice Krauss, you are now uh, in the holding room of the uh, of Fairness Radio. We'll be right with you. Okay. <clears throat> we are back. We are back at Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. You're listening to Fairness Radio on blogtalkradio.com today. Our, our uh, other platform, Cyber Station USA, <laughs> is undergoing a technological upgrade. They'll be back with us this week. We're also being heard on our radio affiliates. And you could be part of this. Email us, fairnessradio at gmail.com, or you can call us, 424-675-6806. For our Blog Talk listeners, please remember we are being heard on terrestrial radio stations, so we have to follow the FCC regulations of the, we can't use the, the seven forbidden words, and we also like to keep the the conversation, uh, something you would like to hear, have your mother listen to. Well, 10 years ago, 28 states required that all employers, even religious employers, cover contraceptions in their insurance plans. Eight states actually required that churches, including the Catholic Church, do the same. There were no complaints. As governors, as Democratic and Republican governors, members of Congress and legislatures, and even a Republican president routinely signed similar laws. But a little over a month ago, the president implemented the preventative care section of the Health Care Reform Act by extending the requirement nationally, although he did exempt churches. And again, we heard no complaints. Then, all of a sudden, the Catholic bishops posted a video saying that this was a violation of their religious freedom, a complaint immediately echoed by conservative media outlets and pundits. The president modified the mandate so religious employers could avoid paying for it, but the bishops and their conservative allies have continued to complain that their rights are being violated, even in the face of a Supreme Court decision to the contrary. So what gives? Why is the issue still in the news? Well, to give us insight into conservative thinking on this topic, we've already had liberal, uh, liberal pundits on the air on this topic, we've invited Dr. Janice Krauss, a senior fellow at the Beverly LaHaye Institute of the conservative organization Concerned Women of America to join us today. Dr. Krauss, Janice, why are the bishops complaining now? What is their issue? 
Well, the biggest issue for conservatives, I can't speak for the Catholic bishops, but for us uh, as a Protestant organization, as an evangelical organization, this is a religious liberty issue. This is a constitutional issue. This is an attack on the First Amendment. It forces religious institutions, in fact, all businesses, to cover contraceptives, even if they disagree with that uh, proposition. We do not as an institution uh, or as persons uh, disagree with it, but we do disagree with the idea of uh, the abortifacients being covered because we do oppose abortion. Uh, This is forced compliance through executive action. Uh, We have a president who has, by fiat, said that all businesses, including religious organizations, would cover it. And his mandate, um, the um, compromise that he presented, uh, wasn't really a compromise. It just shifted to the insurance companies. And, of course, the companies and the religious institutions would have to uh, provide the coverage for the insurance. So, you know, it was a sleight of hand kind of things. So this is, uh, I think, a very needless intrusion into people's private lives and it's you know with the stroke of a bureaucrat's pen and the president's pen we are providing coverage that a lot of people find morally reprehensible and beyond that it's a matter of by fiat saying that uh, religious liberty is no longer uh, something that's protected in u.s law well, just to set the record straight, it wasn't by fiat. Uh, the Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare was implementing a section of a law that was passed by Congress uh, two years ago, and uh, so that he didn't just dream this up. This was this was part of the, the law. You may not like the way in which he implemented it, but it certainly wasn't by fiat. But let me get to the to, to the freedom issue. It was here. an executive mandate. It was, I'll call it, it what it, you it will. Was it was the well, president well, saying, I, I'm calling and it what HHS it is, and that was an implementation of an existing law. It was regulations. Uh, promulgated by the Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare, which is how all congressional laws are implemented. And I've been through this process many times and testified before Congress on it, and that's the way it works. But let's get to the issue here. And the issue is you're saying that that people should not have to obey laws that violate their conscience. Is that it? I'm saying that it's a matter of religious liberty. We were guaranteed in the Constitution that religious liberty would be respected by our government. That is a basic, fundamental right. It's a human right. It's a First Amendment right. It's a constitutional right. And when you say that uh, the government forces organizations to comply with laws that compromise their values and their strict religious beliefs, that's a matter of religious liberty. It's not a matter of uh, uh, whether you approve of contraception or not. Well, we're not forcing anybody. The, 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 the employers involved don't have to be in the business. The Catholic Church doesn't have to be in the hospital business. They could close those hospitals or more likely sell them. Oh, my word, Patrick. So Are you going to recommend? On their part. We're not forcing them to do anything. And Are you going to recommend that? My word, you closed down hmm. Catholic hospitals. In fact, uh, many of our hospitals are operated by churches and uh, human organizations, uh, public organizations that are religious in nature. Uh, you closed down those, and you're putting the country at a real disadvantage here. We well, already are facing... They could be sold to private uh, hospital chains, which is happening anyway. Private hospital chains are buying them, as a matter of fact. That's already going on. So this is... 
a voluntary well, you're saying activity. then, Patrick, that you advocate taking uh, people of faith completely out of the public square and that in the public square you no longer have the right to be a religious person, to have convictions that are based on your religious faith and to operate businesses that conform to your own personal religious faith. That seems to be what you're saying here. Uh, uh, people know, first of all, I'm not advocating that we, we close, uh, that any hospitals be closed. I'm saying that, that if a religious organization wants to operate in the secular world, it has to obey the secular laws. The First Amendment also gives us a freedom of, of religion, not just to practice religion, but freedom to be free of practicing uh, religion. And if you're going to operate a public business that serves the public from all different religions, you have to abide by their freedom of religion or freedom from religion, and you have to obey the, the laws. If you don't want to do no, that, no, 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 you are completely distorting that. Uh, freedom of religion was not a freedom from religion. It was a freedom to express your religious faith freely in the public square, in your private life, not wherever in the public you are. Not in the public yes, square. in the public After square. Been a long, yes, a long run of, of court decisions saying not in the no, public no, square. No, 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 Patrick. We in this country. That's why we. People play in school. That's why we don't have we don't have preachers come into school, and whenever they do, <coughs> they get thrown out by court decisions. It's not in the public square. You're distorting the First Amendment. I beg your pardon here. Uh, throughout our history, people of faith have been free to express their faith in the public square. And for most of our history, even in the schools you were able to pray, you were able to say the Pledge of Allegiance, have the Lord's Prayer. Any form of prayer in the public schools was okay because the majority of Americans are Christians. Uh, I don't have any. I'm not arguing for that. The Constitution operates within the country, and there have been many Supreme court decisions that have said you can't do that, that that's a violation of the, of the rights of people who aren't Christian, and you know that. And, and, well, and in this particular case, the Griswold versus Connecticut decision specifically said that, that uh, birth control cannot be denied by states or by in the public square. Right, but we're talking about whether that's going to be provided by taxpayer funding, whether the federal government is requiring people to provide it out of their pockets rather than people paying for it. In this country, you can hardly go down a block without there being some kind of public institution where people can go in and buy birth control. It's not a matter that there's a shortage or that it's overly expensive or anything else. Anybody in this country who wants birth control can find it. Uh, you know, I just was in a college situation. Uh, baskets of condoms are available in the athletic departments. You do not have a shortage in this country of availability of contraceptives. The question is whether you're going to force people who disagree with that to provide it with their own funds. No, the, the question it's a business is if or a religious agree with that organization are, are going to try to go into business into the secular businesses and not obey the rules. But why don't I uh, introduce you to my conservative colleague here? And also, we, we have with us, as we usually do, a Catholic theologian, Deacon Michael Wanowitz. I'm sure he'll have some things to say here. So, Chuck Morris, take it away. Thank you, Patrick. You know, I think you've got right to the crux of the issue, which is that um, does the public sector, do taxpayers, do the, does the American citizen have to, by law, be forced to pay for condoms uh, if they don't want to? There's nothing in the Constitution that guarantees people condoms. The uh, 
the idea of a religious institution, which is a which is a free system that people can either choose to go to or not, would have to provide condoms. You know, it's more than just the moral questions of forcing a religious institution to do something that they morally object to, whether or not you or I agree with that moral stand or not. It comes down to, because I think that what's triggered here by the Obama administration, even though it is true that there have been mandates all along in the states, is the fact that now suddenly the federal government is mandating various health modalities, and now it comes out in today's Wall Street Journal that a federal agency that was set up as part of the Obama plan is going to classify other uh, issues of health and of health uh, and, and uh, treatment as not mandated and therefore not covered. And I think that uh, while, you know, certainly it is conservatives on the forefront of this that we're concerned about it for moral reasons and for religious reasons, it brings up a much broader secular question that I think is resonating with people and should resonate with everyone, liberal and conservative. And that is whether or not we want to have the federal government increasing its mandate ability to such a degree that it is forcing, on the one hand, coverage and of, of certain health modalities that they arbitrarily have chosen to cover because they think it's a good idea, and at the same time denying coverage for other things. So it's much bigger than just the moral questions, which are very, very real, and which I think Americans, in the gut level, and I don't have statistics to back this up, but they find that to be chilling, whether or not they agree with Catholic hospitals. It's an issue of whether or not the government can start to regulate what is and what isn't mandated, what is and what isn't covered, and that we as citizens are paying for this. There's nothing in the Constitution that says we have to pay for it. Whether or not this whole thing is constitutional, of course, is something that's going to be heard, apparently, at, at, at the Supreme Court level this year. In fact, there are now four lawsuits challenging the mandate. Right, and there are, 20, there are over 25 states that, have, that are challenging the mandate. They're seeking to opt out of the entire, the entire structure, not just, not just the idea that... Uh, that the government would be mandating anything. But I want to just briefly go to another another topic, which is why we originally contacted you. And that is this language, Patrick, that you've been engaged in and that I've heard people on the left engaged in, that to be opposed to abortion is not only hating women and a war against women, but it's an, an agenda to force women back into the Stone Age where they're barefoot and pregnant. This is the kind of rhetoric that I've been dealing with lately, and it's the tonality of it. And it's mostly by men like Patrick, who really has no right to talk about abortion anyways by his own admission. What do you say about that? How do you respond to that? Well, I think it's very clever to begin with because uh, what you have is a situation where it's the feminist, it's men who are saying if you oppose abortion, if you take any stance that is logical and rational, uh, it's a war against women. How do you fight against that kind of argument? Because, uh, you know, it, by its very nature, it's almost impossible to fight against. But, um, you know, I'm a woman. I oppose abortion. I'm a woman. Uh, who fights for traditional conservative values, and I represent the mainstream of American women in this country. Uh, 
I think the whole idea of a war against women is simply a rhetorical technique to win um, the upper hand in this because it's so irrational that it's laughable. Now, I want to just point out that I understand the argument of illegal abortion, by the way. I mean, I don't know if it's appropriate for, at a practical level for the state to force a woman to have a pregnancy, especially in the later stages of her pregnancy. So you and I may disagree with that, but what I, what I find concerning is comments made not only by Patrick but by several feminist guests we've had on this program that women who oppose abortion, and by the way, uh, polls indicate going all the way back to Roe versus Wade that more women than men do oppose abortion, that somehow these women need to be re-educated, that they need to go to re-education camp, uh, that they're ignorant. How do you respond to that? Well, again, uh, I, I think Just it's for last... the record, I've never said that. No, you didn't say that, Patrick. And, and I've never heard a little say that, so, so, so go ahead we and had respond two, to we it, had, No, we had, excuse me, we had two on this program, one of whom was an author of a book. Uh, she's one of the founders of uh, Planned of not Planned Parenthood, of... Uh, uh, main fighters for abortion, Roe versus Wade. Her name uh, escapes me. The book was The Intimate Something. And the other was a woman, Marsh, somebody who was a reporter who also answered that question. I asked both of them that question directly, and that's essentially what they said. So the, if we have that on this station. We have tapes of our programs. I can show, we can provide that later. So, yeah, they do say it, and I've heard from others. But anyway, what do you say to that? Well, I think if you can't convince people logically, you resort to demagoguery and you resort to these kinds of statements. They are on the face of them very laughable and they're very uh, sad to hear because uh, the whole argument that you can't force a woman to bear a child. Nobody's forcing anybody to have sex indiscriminately, to treat sex as something meaningless, to treat it as recreation, and to treat a child as something that's uh, disposable, uh, uh, and at the whim of some adult who doesn't want to accept responsibility for the consequences of their actions. I think the whole argument has been turned on its head. Uh, nobody is forcing anybody to do any of that. Uh, the truth of the matter is, when you're looking at the whole question of abortion, you're looking at the question of the who has rights here. Are you saying that any adult has the right to do anything they want to and then handle the consequences any way they want to, regardless of how it affects someone else. And that's what you're ultimately running toward if you start saying that a woman owns her body and she can do anything with her body that she wants to and that it's a war against women. If you oppose abortion, if you uh, consider the rights of a child who is there. When you look at the number of people throughout history who have been born to mothers who would have preferred not to have a child at that point in time, and these children turn out to be really admirable people in our culture who contributed to society in very significant ways and women who would not have chosen to have a child but define that that child is uh incomprehensible joy to them when it's an actual reality. I think the whole question becomes moot at those kinds of points. No, I'm, I'm hosting today and I want to clarify something. Uh, no, the, war on, the war on women is not a rhetorical <laughs> phrase uh, re related to abortion. It, consider, in the past 30 years, eight abortion doctors and staff have been murdered 
17 have been have been attempted murders. 175 clinics have been firebombed, and there have been 400 recorded death threats against against doctors. The first three bills, the Republican House. Patrick, I just uh, find that so offensive. Every time I rights. personhood is uh, USA is trying. Any time I'm on a program like this, I get threats. I get people. Two states have passed. State-mandated rape law. Twenty-four I'm states with Republican majorities have we'll filed bills to ban insurance coverage of abortion and birth control and private <laughs> insurance. Four hundred and seventy-four anti-choice bills have been filed by Republicans in state legislatures. Republicans Good. refuse to support the reauthorization of violence. Patrick, I could go with a list like years. that as Republicans well on the opposite side of the issue. This is totally irrelevant to our discussion. Hospitals to refuse women. Eighty-seven percent of American counties now have no abortion <laughs> clinics. Oh, Planned Parenthood has been vilified and attacked. This is an all-out, all-front attack on women's health, women's rights, and women's ability to manage their bodies. It's not just about abortion. It's across the board. And that's what we call the war on women, and I'm not backing down on that. Now, Mike, go ahead. Oh, good for you. Now, wait a minute. Uh, you were saying uh, that uh, you've received death threats. I know I've received hate mail. Uh, 400 death threats that... have been received, not me, well, I've by received, doctors. I, I think, you, I think <coughs> the Concerned Women of America probably has received thousands and eight deaths of <coughs> <to> doctors, <coughs> while tragic <coughs> is a very small <coughs> number considering <coughs> what, what we're looking at here. Oh, okay. But, oh, oh uh, really? We, oh, so any death, any death from that kind of... Life? That, that's an interesting argument <coughs> from, from a pro-life person. No, I mean, it's a, as I said, it's tragic, but it, <coughs> and it's an aberration. But it's given given no, the whole it's not. situation. It's a drive. That's the point. It's, it's an, aberration. an aberration. These are yeah, crazies, exactly. and they're crazies on the left and on the right. Mm-hmm. I get no, death no, threats. I get on very the right. pers- nothing to do with the left. You're making stuff up. Oh my word, Patrick! Where have you been? What kind of rock are you living under? I get threats any any time I write an article, any time I'm on a program like this. I get the most abusive, the most harassing, the most violent, the most crude and crass and personal attacks mm-hmm. imaginable. Well, the crazies well, are not I, all on I the right, that. let me tell you that. And the deaths are not all on the right. Mm-hmm. The abuse is not all on the right. And when you talk <clears> about <throat> a war against women, the war against <clears throat> traditional <throat> women <throat> is as bad and worse than <clears throat> what you're describing. And I could reel off as long a list as the list that you just gave. And what you gave is so biased and so one-sided, it's very sad to hear an intelligent man <clears throat> reel off well, that look, kind I'd of like claim and list. claim that there's a war against <clears throat> women like because your you're list. falling into the arguments of some kind of utopian and distorted view of women who are from the far left who have, in my opinion, a war against men. And they have found it very, very financially rewarding. They have found it very powerful to claim these kinds of arguments. It's bought them into positions. It's bought them into government grant money. It's bought them into all sorts of influence both at the federal level and at the international level at the UN to claim that there's a war against women, to claim there's a war against women's health. When in the truth is, when it comes to breast cancer, who gets the most money? It's AIDS, it's men's conditions that get more money than for breast cancer. You want to talk about a war against women, you talk about the kinds of things that affect all women, not just that small little cadre of women who claim that they are being biased against, that they have all these attacks against them, that there's a war against them. It's a figment of their imaginations, and it's something that they have found very beneficial, both at the rhetorical and at the financial and at the power levels. Mike, I hear you clearing your throat. Do you want to get a word in edgewise here? 
<clears throat> well, you know, I, I guess this whole conversation uh, for me uh, revolves around something that seems to be pushed aside. People making decisions, and whether you call it a war against something, whether it be women or an issue, like abortion being an issue, it seems to me that uh, when there is a fertilized egg and we have a journey to possible adulthood, if you will, a child being born, something happened between two people, typically. And when there is a question about whether or not to continue with the pregnancy, would it not be the right thing to have both parties in agreement as to what to do, first of all? So who are the two parties? Uh, the male and the female. Well, of course, a lot of times the, the male doesn't care or has disappeared. Or sometimes, well, I don't know, well, 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 they're pushing for an abortion. But, uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm, and when the male disappears, then the government takes over, and we've become uh, we've put the government as the husband, the government as the provider for women. And I don't think women find that a very satisfactory solution. I, I've, I've, I don't understand how you reach that. What's your train of logic on that one? Wow! Look at the entitlements. You've got a country where forty-one percent of the children are born out of wedlock, and the cost of that—not to mention the human cost, which is just the thing that concerns me the most—but the financial cost to the country is absolutely <clears throat> astounding. And what's that cost comprised of? Because the majority of those are born by white working women. Oh no, they're not. Oh yes, they, they are. Most, oh, <laughs> I beg to differ with you. They most certainly are not. Educated women, women with college degrees, only 90, 92% of them have children who, when they are married. It's a very small percentage. The percentage of uh, children born out of wedlock are to women who do not have a college degree. I, I said white working women, not college-educated women. But you're right on that, but it's white working women. No, it's black women. Sorry, your data is completely skewed. I will look it up while we continue the conversation. Feel free. You know, it occurred, it occurred I can't know that data argue, backwards and forwards. Okay. Yeah, you could argue that they're, you know, using the kind of war on women rhetoric that uh, both sides could use that kind of rhetoric and say there's a war on women, um, and there's a war every time these issues come up because women are the bearers of children and that there are strong opinions on both sides. I think that the rhetoric is overblown. Um, on both sides, you know, the, it, these are moral questions that transcend women, and the proof is that more women than men are opposed to abortion. These are issues of life and death, and and if you believe that the unborn child is, is a living being, and most people do, including most people who are pro-choice, then it's as, it's as relevant an issue for our secular society to take up as is issues like the death penalty and euthanasia, and any other issue that involves life and death. I mean, the basic function of any society is to, to try to protect human life and to try to have policies that bring the maximum amount of protection of human life. I think that's something that most people understand, and I think that most people that do think that there's an argument that could be made for legal abortion understand that, and they, they understand that it's the, the very profound moral aspect to taking that life. You know, I, I think there may be something else going on here. Um, as, as Chuck and I have discussed many times, uh, uh, the, whether or not the uh, fertilized egg is a human being is a subject of debate, and there are those of us who believe it's not, that it's a potential human being. 
uh, and its rights are secondary, if it has rights, are secondary to that of the mother. But I think there's something else going on here, and that is the reason why the, the Catholic hierarchy didn't complain for the past 10 years is that the Catholic hierarchy has, has made kind of a quiet deal with its, its laity. The laity allow the Catholic hierarchy to preach against birth control, and then the laity goes ahead and practices birth control. The laity doesn't challenge the hierarchy, and the hierarchy doesn't challenge the, the laity. Both of them just do what they want, and there hasn't been an issue. And the way that the, the hierarchy was able to deal with this is when the state laws came in, is they said, well, this isn't a challenge to our authority. These are, this isn't national. This isn't an overarching authority. We still have the moral authority here. But when the, the federal government issued those regulations, that was a challenge to the moral authority of the bishops. And we have to remember these are the people who covered up child rape in, in churches by priests for 10 years, so their moral authorities were a little shaky anyway. They saw this as a challenge to their moral authority. It, it brought to the fore the hypocrisy that had been going on for 10 years, and they felt that they had to push back. I don't think this is about birth control at all. Oh, Patrick, it's, no, it's not bishop, about birth control. It's about bishop, uh, freedom and, of and religion. Moral authority. Sorry, go ahead. It's about the Constitution. It's about religious liberty. No, it's not about birth control. It's a matter of what is going to... Uh, do we have a situation where a president can just, by a mandate, force Americans to pay for something that violates their religious views. This is well, a matter of religious liberty, constitutional on. issue. You get it off onto whether it's a matter of contraception or not, and then you're going to, yeah, you're going to have the Catholic bishops against everybody else. And that's not the bottom line at all. It is a moral issue, yes, for the Catholics and for many other people. But you start right here, and it's going to move into other religious liberty issues as well. well. I, I have to, to point out that, that the federal government has been requiring people to do things that violate whatever their consciousness is for some time. Pacifists have been required to, to pay taxes and even to join the military. Uh, you know, this is this is the power we give to government, and we are government of of uh, democracy. Pacifists don't have to bear arms. Actually, Come on, uh, we adapt to, to their views. For wars, they can't opt out of that particular part of it. And when there was a draft, no, pacifists either had and to go to Canada or become part of the military. And even though they didn't carry Article guns, they also 8. supported the military. So the government Article does have this power. Yeah, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 3 gives Congress the ability to declare war. So, But there's nothing in the Constitution that gives the government the power to force people to buy any particular health modality. War is another matter. That is in the Constitution. And whether or not the government will have this power is something that will be decided, apparently, by the Supreme Court, even if they decide that the government has that power. I would argue that it doesn't. It hasn't it traditionally. There's nothing in the Constitution that says well, that people well, have to pay for something that they don't want to have done uh, regarding we'll health. Uh, obviously, we will we're, we're going to see on, on that one. With and the also, Supreme Patrick, Court. I hardly think that anybody on the left has is any position to lecture conservatives about violence and about acts of violence, given the fact Isn't that, that the progressive, truth? A progressive left has given birth to both Nazi socialism and communism. Uh, the progressive left has nothing to do with Nazi socialism or communism. The progressive left came out of the union movement in this country at fights for justice for people. Yeah, Mike, you haven't violence. said much in this, and we're almost That's out of time. Violence. Do you have any comments? <clears throat> I'm sorry. Repeat that again, Patrick. Uh, uh, we're almost out of time here, and you, you have really haven't said much. And this is obviously very, affects uh, you and your hierarchy there. W what are your? Why don't you wrap it up here? 
Well, for example, uh, let me just, you know, getting back to an issue we talked about at the top of the show, uh, in, in the New York Times this morning, I'm just quoting from the article by Reed Appleson. Uh, he was saying that in Rockford, Illinois, there is resistance to a plan by a health care run by the Sisters of the Third Order of St. Francis to buy a hospital because of new restrictions that would require women to go elsewhere if they wanted a tubal ligation after a cesarean section. And I think that underlies the issue that's been going on for, as you say, 10 years, is that when Catholic institutions are being asked to perform a procedure which is against their doctrine, then they typically would refer to another place for the person to go so that they're not involved in what is called an intrinsically evil operation. And I think that's the essence that, you know, Catholic institutions have been under this particular pressure for a long time. And locally, hospital by hospital or bishop by bishop, they've handled things on a uh, situational basis. Well, and with that, I think we are out of time. Uh, uh, Janice, I want to thank you very much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us, Janice. My pleasure. Dr. Janice Klaus, a senior fellow at the at the Beverly LaHaye Institute of Concerned Women of America, and you can learn more about the Concerned Women of America and Janice at www.cwfa.org. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll finish this. We'll continue this discussion. Stay with us. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Radio with Chuck and Patrick, and today is Religion Tuesday, so we have with us uh, Deacon Michael Wanowitz of uh, Sharon, Massachusetts, and uh, we've been discussing uh, birth control, Catholic hospitals, uh, the issues of the day, and we just had an interview with uh, Dr. Janice Krauss, a senior fellow at the Beverly LaHaye Institute of Concerned Women of America, and I wanted to, um, to, to I didn't get your response to my theory that the reason that the bishops didn't say anything for 10 years is that they were afraid that if they um, if, if they complained about state regulations, which they obeyed with, with no problem at all, this would put a spotlight on this hypocritical deal they've made with their um, their laity that the bishops, that the priests can go ahead and preach against birth control and they will ignore the fact that the laity are ignoring them and the laity will go ahead and listen to their they're uh, preaching against birth control, and they'll go ahead and use it. And that, that, and that uh, putting a spotlight on that kind of embarrasses the church. It takes away some of their moral authority, and that's why they, they all of a sudden decided that uh, they, they wanted to contest this. Uh, any thoughts on that, uh, Mike? I didn't hear anything until you just broke in. I'm sorry. 
Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> In a sim- uh, once was- again, technology comes to the uh, uh, gives us a, another problem. I was saying that the, the reason the bishops didn't complain for the past ten years when they've been mm-hmm. regulated by the states is that they were afraid that uh, they would this put a spotlight on what I would call is a hypocritical position of the bishops allowing priests to <clears throat> preach against birth control. <clears throat> Knowing that the fact that, that the laity ignored them and the laity to listen to the priest, uh, priest uh, preach against birth control uh, and not complain about it that uh, that this was a a useful um, uh, uh, relationship between the two and that it would come to light as soon as the bishop started complaining. Well, that uh, from my perspective would be sort of a a guess as to what took place in situation after situation. I think there's a parallel, as you mentioned, over the years that certain bishops covered up uh, terrible things that priests and others were doing in their child abuse cases. But this was in certain situations, not, let's say, universally. I think if you look at the bishops who had responsibility, if you will, in their diocese for a particular hospital or institution, and they talked to the directors of the hospital and said, are you observing the uh, ethical religious directors that govern how Catholic hospitals work? And the directors say, yes, indeed, everything is going according to, etc." And the bishops continued with their own policy, perhaps not realizing that certain things were being ignored. And I think that's the case when a bishop saw that he heard that a particular priest might have been involved in something and he asked, somebody else to take charge uh that's not good stewardship but again we have the human situation i'm not sure i would agree that there was some sort of uh hypocrisy involved in terms of the bishops just ignoring necessarily or knowing what was happening and forgetting about it uh, <clears throat> we'd have to go into almost case by case and say how about bishop x and how about diocese and how about this institution and kind of an unravel what really took place. It's it's not an easy kind of piece of history to go back and say this is precisely what took place. Okay, all right. Um, Patrick, I, mean, Patrick, I don't think there's yeah. any evidence that that, um, that they were silent about it, but I just want to... Well, there's no evidence to... that they weren't. <laughs> yes, there is. They were in Boston. They were pretty vociferous about it, actually. But I just want to respond to... Um, when I pointed out that progressives are hardly in a position to complain about violence, you said, well, what about the union movement? I would argue just historically that when the union movement has had conservative leaders like Samuel Gompers and uh, George Meany and here in Boston, Dominic Bozzato and others, they have generally not been violent. And the, t- the instances where they have been terribly violent, usually against workers, by the way, in fact, always against workers, has been when they have been under the influence of far-left leaders. So, you know, to make a blanket statement about the union, first of all, I, I reject the idea that liberals somehow are supporters of unionism. I mean, that's false. But generally, you could point historically to a pretty consistent pattern of violence when unions, is, at least historically, have been under left leadership. Uh, could you name a, a, a string of issues, for of uh, uh, instances for me? Because I, sure. I would agree with your facts. Instances where there have been violent strikes going all the way back to the Haymarket strike in Chicago in 1893 have been instigated by left-wing leaders of unions, not conservative leaders. Conservative leaders like Gompers and uh, Sam and Meany and others 
time, generally, if you take a look at the pattern of their record, there was less violence and there was more working with, you know, more kind of cooperation and working with people. And that the violence committed by unions, it's not violence against the CEO. It's not violence against the company. It's violence against other workers who are trying to break the union line. That's where the violence and the murders have happened. Well, well, but, actually, uh, that's that. I, I disagree with that. The violence has been okay. instigated by the employers who who brought in Brinks guards and and others to beat up the striking the strike the striking unions. That's, that's where too, the violence came but, from, and they were defending I, that, themselves. That, no, that's true too, Patrick. But most of the violence, if you look at the history of the union movement, was committed against people who are so are called so-called scabs, people who are trying to break the union lines. And I think that's something that I would be happy if you'd like to do a very thorough uh, show on and, and a documentation on. And, uh, I, I, and would, uh, yeah, I would. I would, because it's not, a, it's, it's not history I'm familiar with, although my father-in-law actually worked with Samuel Gompers, and my father-in-law is about as liberal as you can get. Uh, I have to yeah, correct Gompers myself. Was a, Gompers was a great conservative, and, and that's not a matter of dispute. Well, I didn't. Anyway, I don't know if he was. I'm saying my father-in-law wasn't. Um, or, right. But I, I have to correct myself on the uh, out-of-wedlock births. Uh, both of us were mm-hmm. right. The um, overwhelming percentage of babies born out of wedlock are actually born to white women. However, that's the uh, the percentage of black children and minority children who are born out of wedlock is much higher. The reason that mm-hmm. the overwhelming number of babies um, born out of wedlock uh, are born to white women is is because white women uh, make up the majority of the uh, uh, the population. And I'm looking here at Child Trends Data Bank here which points out that um, uh, 82% of, 82.4% of 15- to 19-year-old black women uh, have out-of-wedlock babies, and, it's just, and uh, the, uh, the white woman uh, is more like 9, 9%. But uh, the, Patrick, the, numbers are my, the numbers are right, but the percentages are wrong. You're trying to interject race into a conversation which race had nothing to do with it. You, you brought it up, you interjected it, and now you're continuing with it. The whole no, I wasn't. Uh, that, <laughs> yes, you did. Yes, you did. I, I, we could go back to the tape. Uh, I was I want responding to, to one of her remarks by bringing up the race issue. Now I want to no, go actually, back. actually, she brought else. it up. I said there are are made uh, to white working no, women, said, and which is true. No, and she, then she, she said, she, no, she they're the minorities, which is true on a percentage basis. So we're both, no, we're both actually right. Yeah. She, well, you brought it up, and then she responded by saying with the part of the, the, your comments that she did here, which was your claim that educated women are more likely, which she said that's not the case when it comes to college degrees. Uh, I didn't say but educated. Patrick, I said working. Well, but, the, but she responded to the part which you did say educated. I but Patrick, say, I, I want to. Well, word. well, well, you know, Sonny, we'll just have to go back to the tape. I heard you use it, and you can laugh all you want. I mean, we we don't have time in the middle of the show to go back to the tape. We, I mean, I, we, it would be good if we had a way to do that pretty quickly, but we don't. Uh, in fact, it would probably clear up a lot of things. But I want to bring up something that was brought up last Friday, and I didn't have a chance to respond to it. Okay. And that was we the have three minutes. Of, so go ahead. Pat Buchanan getting drummed out of MSNBC and the emails that I get from Media Matters, which I'm probably not supposed to get, by the way. I'm also not supposed to get Elizabeth Warren's emails, which are very revealing. Where they're not only celebrating the fact that he was fired or he was no longer on the air, but saying, you know, which is one thing, but it's like we want to annihilate these conservatives, get them off the air. 
And I back that up by pointing out that they tried to boycott Fox News and that they have a book coming out that shock of shocks says that Fox News is conservative. No kidding. And you <laughs> no, responded it says it's by propaganda, saying, it's not news. <laughs> that's what yeah, it says. But they said because they have a conservative bias. And no. that, I don't think that's something that's disputable. They, they will be the first to say that. Um, in fact, uh, the head of uh, the, the director of Fox News, uh, Roger Ailes, is a former Reagan official. I mean, I think he ran Reagan's media. So, right. I mean, there's no question they're conservative. I mean, this is like they act like this is some kind of a shocking relevation. There's no denial of that, although they do have some pretty good cons- liberals on there, by the way, including Bob Beckel and Alan Combs and, I don't know, maybe some others. But um, the one, but you said, well, liberal conservatives have tried to force liberals off the air which is untrue, and then you mentioned as an example Keith Olbermann. And that is untrue, Patrick. Keith Olbermann went off the air because he demanded an enormous amount of money from MSNBC, and they told him to take a hike. It had nothing to do with conservatives. It had to do with him. And I think that there was some chortling on the part of conservatives when he did go off the air, mainly because he screwed all the people that were working for him. And this is a guy who claimed to be championing the rights of working people. By, he didn't inform them. He just walked off, and, and he left these people without jobs. So he had nothing to do with conservatives. Now, conservatives do now, criticize now, what, what, What's your source for that? It was, it was discussed at the time he did it. it was, I mean, I could look it up. I'm not in front of a computer right now, but it was widely reported. And, uh, you know, conservatives certainly do criticize liberal commentators. Of course, that's what liberals commentate conservatives. That's fine. That's what they're supposed to do. But there is not an effort, and nor has there been, on the part of conservatives to get liberals off the air. No one is trying to put MSNBC out of business. Whereas if you take a look at media matters, that's exactly what they are trying to do, and they make no bones about it. We've had an accomplishment. We've got We've got that awful right-wing nut, you know, Patrick Cannon off the mm-hmm. air, and who's in it, and who's next? I mean, it's just ugly. And my only point is that it would be a much more, I mean, what do they want? Only liberals on the air? I mean, it would be a much more reasoned debate if, if one could tolerate the fact that there are conservatives on the air and criticize them on the merits. Well, well, well we're going to be of... off the air if we don't take a, uh, a break. Okay. It's, it's the end of the hour, and we will be back in a minute continue this conversation. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick, and it's, it's uh, Religion Tuesday, so Deacon Michael Wanowitz is with us, and we'll be right back. Two about one of our sponsors, and that's Barton Publishing, 
BartonPublishing.com. BartonPublishing.com provides you with information you can use to manage your body and to stay healthy without paying for expensive drugs or possibly even dangerous drugs. Barton Publishing is uh, the, the brainchild of Joe Barton, who's actually going to be on the show with us uh, later on this week. But we urge you to check out BartonPublishing.com, www.BartonPublishing.com. Whenever you feel like you want to know more about your body and you want to know more about how to manage your body for health. We're back on. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Um, and we have with us uh, Michael Wanowitz, Deacon Michael Wanowitz of uh, Sharon, Massachusetts, who's our uh, resident theologian. And we've been talking about um, media and media matters and the fact that um, Pat Buchanan left MSNBC, which I think was a tragedy. I, I, like, I like Pat Buchanan. I disagree with most of what he said, but um, he, he's very articulate. He's very uh, intelligent, and he provided a different view. And, it, it's, uh, and of course, this being the Fairness, the fairness Radio, uh, we, we subscribe to different views. So I was sorry to see Pat Buchanan go. I'm not sure whether Media Matters or any other organization forced him off the air. He claims they did. Um, but um, Chuck has said that uh, Media Matters is very ha- happy that he's gone. I'm not happy that he's gone. Now, I support Media Matters. I know the people there. I, I very much appreciate the fact that, that they constantly uh, catch the conservative uh, media in lies and distortions, and they, they print them, and, of course, conservatives hate to have that done to them. And, of course, we have to remember that they're not the only ones who do it. There's also a uh, News Busters, which is the conservative version of Media Matters, which uh, catches uh, liberals and lies and distortions, too. And I think we, we need these kinds of checks on the media because we don't always get it right. I just, I just made a mistake in the, in the, the last hour, and uh, it needs to be uh, pointed out. Now, Chuck has said that uh, Media Matters is publishing a book that claims that Fox is conservative, and I, I have to repeat once again, Chuck, that's not what the book claims. The book claims that Fox News is not news, it's propaganda, and it happens to be conservative propaganda, it's, it, but it doesn't claim that it's conservative, it claims that it's propaganda, that it's not really well, news, see. and I happen to agree let's, with that, too. So, go ahead. Let's wait till we see the book, let's, let's wait till we see the, um, we have the book, you know, in our hands, Patrick, before we, we, we could take a look at it, and I'm not saying that... Um, Media Matters. Nobody's. I don't think anyone's claiming that Media Matters drove Pat Buchanan off the air, but they certainly tried to, and they tried to drive Rush Limbaugh off the air too. They boycotted his products. You just don't see that amongst liberal uh, conservatives. They're not doing that to MSNBC. They're not. They're not trying to drive liberals off the air. They may criticize them, but this is. It, it shows a difference in temperament and a difference, perhaps, in, in philosophy. Mm. You know, this idea that uh, anyone who expresses a conservative opinion is like they're an enemy of the people and that they have to be, you know, purged from, from society and annihilated. I mean, it's just, well, uh, that's all I'm not, saying. I'm not saying they okay. did it. And, and, and I don't know if they did or not. You're right. Of course, we do know that conservative media drove Van Jones out of the White House, so they do have their attack machines there, too. But uh, Media Matters and then liberal media in general doesn't, doesn't complain about people uh, expressing conservative opinions. It's when they lie, misquote, and, and distort things. That's, that's when we uh, complain. And Russ Limbaugh does this constantly. He makes stuff up all the time. He's cut, there are so many websites, I can't count them, that daily correct Rush Limbaugh. That's the thing I that want we to go after. To... It's we go after when people 
Don't don't tell no, the crew. Going after they 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 they. Uh, they're trying to get them off the air. Patrick. No, I'm not trying to get them off the air. And, and no, they are. No, I, not. I mean, I'm saying this, and I want to respond to the Van Jones do that. thing. That's that's an entirely different matter. Somebody who is a czar in a public setting, uh, you know, we whether they be left or right, you should expose what they believe in. And the case you're talking about was Glenn Beck basically pointing out that. Dan Jones had been a member of a communist organization and that he had also been a denier. He had been one of these, he had supported a group that claimed that George Bush was behind the 9-11 attack. And that is what led the Obama administration to have to, to, to remove him. It wasn't a conservative thing. It happened to be Glenn Beck who did that. Who's so conservative. And, uh, <laughs> sure. And no, no question. But that's what media is supposed to do. They're supposed to try to identify who is in positions of power, what their background is, what their associations are, whether it be left or right. That's not a concerted thing. It, it apparently appeared that Jones was involved in in situations that the president felt he couldn't, uh, you know, continue to defend. And well, he was we, involved we, in a kind of Patrick. You know, he said so on our show. We, exactly. Yes, but uh, uh, Glenn Beck failed to point out that while uh, Van was was briefly members of some of those organizations. He didn't subscribe to any of those beliefs, and and that's the kind of distortion and, and lying that uh, Media Matters points out. He, he simply wasn't there, and if he was you know, there, Patrick, it might not I, have been a problem. I remember we asked. I asked Van Jones that question directly when he appeared on this program. Was he a member of this communist organization? And uh, his answer actually was. You know, and when I look back at it, it was more damning than if he had simply said, "Yes, I was, and I don't subscribe to their political views." It was a, it was a, you know, wrong thing to do. His answer instead was, "It was a youthful indiscretion," is what he said, and I'm quoting. Okay. Now, what does that mean? What that, what that means is that he was indiscreet. If he perhaps had been more discreet about it. It would have been okay. He didn't disavow it. No, you're, you're putting words in his mouth. The youthful indiscretion means that, that he should not have done it, as, as, as any, but as a young person, he didn't have the good judgment, and as soon as he had the good judgment, he left. Possibly. I mean, the way I see the word indiscretion means he, he was not regretful that he had done it. He never said he was, but that he should have been a little bit more careful and discreet about it because look at the problems it's causing him now. And well, see, this, was, is uh, kind of, this is the kind of thing we complain about, is that you're putting words in his mouth, you're misconstruing what he said, and I'm you're not trying to nail him for it. I'm repeating <laughs> what he said. He said it was and a good you're, And you're adding your meaning to it. Right. I'm adding my opinion of what I hear there, because I didn't hear him disavow it. I didn't hear him say it was wrong. He just said it was a youthful indiscretion. Yeah, that's my opinion, Patrick. Okay. Maybe All we right. could ask him again. But uh, that's what I heard there. Uh, Mike, we... Uh, we, we Began this is uh, Religion uh, Tuesday. We we began the, uh, the, uh, the the show with a with a uh, story in the New York Times today about uh, uh, Catholics in hospitals and and um, the, the problems that are going on there. And I noticed that the governor of Kentucky um, uh, nixed a deal between Catholic hospitals uh, and private hospitals in which Catholic hospitals were supposed to take over the private hospitals and the governor of Kentucky, which is not a liberal state, um, nixed the deal because he was afraid that the, that uh, once Catholic uh, organizations ran the hospital, they wouldn't provide all the same services that the public ho- that the privately run hospitals would. 
And I right. think we're going to see a lot more of that now. And I don't know if there's a conversation going on with the Catholic Church about that. Is there? Well, the uh, reverse situation happened here in Boston uh, a couple of years ago when the Catholic hospital chain Caritas Christi uh, was facing very large financial difficulties. And Cardinal Sean here in the Archdiocese of Boston looked for ways around it. Uh, after two failed attempts to get funding, uh, he then got approval from the organization, from the Archdiocese, uh, and did have Caritas Christi sold to Steward Corporation, a secular hospital chain, which is now running the hospitals which formerly were, quote, Catholic hospitals in the, in the area. And it's kind of a, a, a different scenario, but similar, because the binding issue for the Cardinal, Cardinal Sean, was that even though the steward chain would now be a secular hospital, that in fact the Catholic identity, uh, for example, in many of the hospitals currently being run today, that they would not perform procedures inimical to Catholic doctrine. Let me hold you right there while uh, we've got to welcome in our listeners, and then we'll continue the thought. Uh, From from Cyber Station USA and Blog Talk Radio, it's Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. It's time to welcome our radio listeners on 1490 WWPR in Tampa Bay, Bradenton, Florida, and KSKQFM in Ashland, Oregon. I'm Patrick O'Heffernan in California, co-hosting with Chuck Morris. He's actually on assignment in Florida today, and we are joined by Deacon Michael Wanowitz, our resident theologian, we'd like to be joined by you, fairnessradio at gmail.com, or you can call the number on your screen, 424-675-6806. And after the show, check out our website, fairnessradio.com. Okay, uh, sorry I had to interrupt you there, uh, Mike. Go ahead. Sure. Well, for example, if somebody went to St. Elizabeth in Brighton in the Boston area, a long-term Catholic hospital and as wanted to have, say, a tubal ligation, then the ethical directors would indicate that St. Elizabeth would refer the patient to where they could uh, have the operation done in a non-Catholic environment. So it is the back and forth between the secular hospital, the Catholic hospital, and how it is that certain procedures, sterilization or others, which would be contrary to Catholic faith, in that area, then this continues what is in the New York Times article today, Catholic hospitals expand and religious strings are attached. So this is going to be uh, a continuing series of how to handle the mixture, the admixture of the secular and the religious. Chuck, any thoughts on that before we break for our guest? Yeah, and also I just want to mention as a quick program note that I'm going to be on tonight with Jim Bohannon. From from 11 p.m. till midnight, the big nationally syndicated show. He wants to talk about my book, A Wig Manifesto, which is available now as an e-book on Amazon. It's not yet; uh-huh. it'll be in hard copy in April in bookstores. So I just want to mention that in case all listeners want to hear me tonight at 11 p.m. Eastern. Congratulations um, on that. Thank you, uh, Mike. The um, uh, d- does the uh, Cardinal Sean have any representative? Does he have any um, liaison with the Stewart Company? Not officially, uh, in terms of, say, being on the board of directors or, or, or what what would have. 
um, you know, that kind of contact. So there's no oversight per se other than, you know, he dealing individually or having people deal individually and uh, hearing from people at St. Elizabeth's, for example, that this is happening or not happening and what to do about it. But it was an issue at the merging or the selling out, buying out, whatever, at the time with Stewart, <laughs> to the extent that uh, if Cardinal Sean felt that the Catholic hospitals were being compromised in what they were doing, then for a certain sum of money, Stewart would just buy out, uh, and it would clearly be, have no relationship, whatever, with a Catholic identity, and all of the hospitals could do whatever in a secular way they wished to. So there was the but, yet, of, but yet the, the hospitals have retained the Catholic identity, at least the trappings of a Catholic identity. I don't know about Catholic doctrine, but um, well, as a steward company, I mean, do they have anybody in their corporation that that is, uh, you know, at least uh, reasonably sympathetic to Catholic sensibilities? I mean, or, or not? Well, the interesting thing is that the uh, the man who used to run Caritas Christi, uh, a Catholic mm-hmm. doctor. Uh, is now the CEO of the uh, Stewart chain. Okay. Well, there's a good, good, a pretty good yeah. contact person. Right, right. But Gentlemen, we're going to have to take a break, and when we come okay. back, we're going to have Tom Palkin with us, and he's going to talk mm-hmm. about where the jobs are. So stay tuned. We're listening to Fairness Radio mm-hmm. with Chuck and Patrick. Commission, how may I respond? Uh, yes, can I have the director's office, please? Okay, one moment. 
Doctor's Office, please hold. Thank you for holding. May I help you? Uh, yes, uh, this is uh, Fairness Radio. We're interviewing Tom Falcon now. You, you're interviewing who? Uh, Mr. Falcon. You want me to transfer you to his office? Yes, please do. Hold on, please. Chairman Pawkins office. Hi, this is Patrick O'Heffernan with Fairness Radio. It's time for uh, the chairman's interview. Okay, we're just trying to get a hold of you. Just one moment. Okay. <coughs> Hello? Tom? Yes. Patrick O'Heffernan. Hold on, we're going to go on the air here. Okay, let me just close this door just a second. Sure. Hmm. Okay, we are back. You are listening to Fairness Radio. Okay. With Chuck and Patrick. Hmm. And uh, you're listening to us on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, Cyber Station USA is upgrading its equipment. You're also hearing us on our radio affiliates around the country. Well, the economy is recovering although much slower than we might want. We've seen 23 consecutive months of private sector job growth, and each week we seem to see reports of falling unemployment claims. So where are the new jobs, and what kind of jobs are they? Well, last week, President spoke at Master Lock in Ohio, which brought new high-paying jobs back from China. But are all the new private sector jobs high-paying with benefits, or are they minimum wage with no benefits? And more important, as we move forward, what kind of jobs will there be for Americans, and what kind of preparation will Americans need for those jobs? Well, for answers, we turn to our regular contributor on domestic economics, Tom Palkin, chairman of the Texas Workforce Commission, former Republican White House official, and author of the great book, Bringing America Home. Hi, Tom. Good to be with you again, gentlemen. Good to be with you. Your uh, Chuck is with us, and of course this is Tuesday, so we have Deacon Michael Wanowitz with us, too. And, and, Tom, where are the new private sector jobs, and what kind of well, jobs are they? The uh, the irony is that even during a period of high unemployment, which we have now, uh, there is an, a, a tremendous demand for the skilled trades. That's the shortage. Uh, and I think you've got a lot of unskilled workers, and then you've got a lot of people that uh, were pushed into going to a university, Unfortunately, we have the highest dropout uh, rate uh, uh, among the industrialized nations in terms of college students, I think in part because a lot of people were pushed to go to a four-year university uh, who would have been better suited uh, uh, getting an occupational skill. But the gap is uh, in the skilled trades area. There's a real demand for skilled trades. 
And there are two factors that are hurting us on this front. One is that uh, we fell into the trap, oh, probably a decade or so ago, uh, that de-emphasized and almost denigrated uh, uh, the skilled trades, vocational and technical education at the secondary school level, the manufacturing jobs. Those are dirty jobs. We don't need that. Uh, we're we're going to be uh, the new age of the knowledge industry. And, and as a result, there's a real uh, a gap in the pipeline because uh, – too many of the uh, of, of the educational institutions, and uh, we have that problem in our state. They begin to teach to a test, and the test was oriented towards everybody going to a university. And some people are oriented to, uh, to go to a university. Others uh, need to be career-ready and have the opportunity to go into the skilled <laughs> trades, and I think we've neglected that. And so that's where the real shortage is, uh, uh, particularly in our state in Texas. Well, when you say skilled trades, I wonder if you could give our listeners an, an example of a skilled trades job. Well, let's talk plumbers. Right. Uh, welders, electricians, pipe fitters, plumbers. For example, I was with visiting with a friend of mine who works with uh, the master plumbers in the state of Texas. And he was telling me, and I'm going to meet with the group in about a, a month, uh, that the average age of the master plumbers is about 56 years of age. Many of them have great businesses. Uh, but very often their their own children don't want to go into it, and there's a real shortage of uh, of plumbers. And these are good paying jobs. And let me tell you, they can't be outsourced to China or India either. <laughs> uh, well, I've noticed in, in um, uh, tours of factories. Uh, I, I remember touring uh, uh, an auto plant in um, uh, Fremont, California, not too long ago. Uh, most of the manufacturing jobs are actually people sitting at control panels running robots. That it's, you don't you don't see well, assembly lines anymore. Is that it? Might is that well? Correct? That's that that's true to a degree, and I think, uh, quite frankly, um, uh, the reason uh, we've able able to keep alive our manufacturing base is uh, in the wake of an atrocious tax system, which literally. Uh, incentivizes the shipping of manufacturing jobs overseas by the way we tax business. However, there are many, many uh, uh, companies that uh, need machinists. I mean, there's a real shortage of, uh, of machinists. There's still a lot of specialized work <coughs> that is out there. Uh, we have a, a tremendous explosion um, in Texas uh, with the natural gas and, and uh, energy uh, discoveries in our state. And a, and a real shortage of, uh, of of skilled workers. So it is uh, it is not just the sort of uh, you know advanced manufacturing, and so everybody needs to uh, operating those machines uh, needs to have equivalent of a college education. There are a lot of uh, good skilled trades jobs out there where somebody who's uh, had that training in high school uh, with industry certified uh, instructors or has gone to a community college and gotten either an occupational certificate or an associate's degree those are jobs that uh, they're good paying jobs and and they're available uh and and the second problem we have um and there's an article today uh, uh, about Ohio and some of the problems employers are finding in hiring skilled tradespeople uh, these people are operating sophisticated machinery and uh, in Texas for example I was with a a panel recently and an energy company trying to hire over 100 
uh, commercial uh, drivers, and that's uh, that's under DOT because you're driving these big trucks and you have to be uh, drug tested. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they uh, pre-approved over a hundred people at the job fair, and then uh, drug tested them the next day, and over fifty over fifty percent uh, failed the drug test. So uh, this is a real problem in our society, and I think young people who get into the drug culture do not realize what they're doing to themselves in terms of limiting their career opportunities. Well, uh, on a policy level, uh, and you can tell us what you're doing in Texas too, because I know Texas has been very good at creating new jobs. On a policy level. Uh, Is this an argument for more funding going to junior colleges, community colleges, trade technical uh, colleges? Well, I think you've got, obviously, you've got a limited pie, uh, and I'm a big advocate, uh, whether it's in the state of Texas, let's just say the state of Texas. Uh, We know next legislative session we're going to have so much money uh, for, you know, secondary school education and post-secondary school education. And quite frankly, I think at the post-secondary school level, you get a bigger bang for the buck uh, with the community colleges on the skilled trades front than some of the uh, so-called renowned universities uh, where the costs are, uh, it's a lot more expensive to educate kids. And a lot of the young people aren't aren't graduating or, you know, maybe spend, uh, as one example, uh, two-thirds of the of the kids who were in the bottom 40% of their high school graduating class who went on to a four-year university as their first, as their first post-secondary institution of, of higher learning, uh, eight and a half years later, two-thirds of them hadn't graduated. So, And they got a lot of debt. They, they and their parents, uh, the average debt on even a college student graduating is 25000 plus a year. And so if you could provide vocational and technical education at the secondary school level, give young people the skills, and they can either go to work after that or go into uh, a community college or a four-year institution, they've got a trade. And and I, I think we've got to shift direction. So I'm in favor of uh, more emphasis uh, in, in terms of overall funding on the community college front, particularly as it as it applies to the skilled trades. Now, at the federal level, what I would prefer is look, let's get, let's just block grant the money back on a pro grata basis and let the states and local communities make the determination how to spend that money. I think, you know, we have different needs in Texas and different needs in different parts of Texas. The same in other states, whether it be California or Illinois or. Florida, wherever, and let the local folks uh, make the determination how to spend those dollars. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, there's, there's another trend, or maybe it's not a trend, and, and you can tell me. I've, uh, I've seen some states now beginning to, uh, or some, some colleges and some high schools, beginning to develop apprenticeship programs with local manufacturers and also with unions, because unions uh, also do a, a lot of this kind of training, too. We do, we do a lot of that here in Texas, and we have a great labor commissioner, and we work, uh, we work well with the, uh, both uh, the union community as well as the business community. These apprenticeship programs are terrific. Now, you mentioned earlier that uh, a tax system which incentivizes uh, corporations to export jobs, and I know that they right. they can expense the cost of exporting jobs, so it's actually they actually deduct it. Uh, is there any other changes you'd make in the tax system other than well, removing that? What I, w- 
yeah, what I would do is uh, you've got a you've got a cur- give the example that I give. It's not just the low wage nations that are stealing jobs from America or that have a strong manufacturing base. Uh, Germany, which has a strong manufacturing sector, is a high wage nation, and yet they have significant manufacturing surpluses. Uh, trade surpluses. Well, we're running massive manufacturing trade deficits, over five trillion between 2000 and 2008. But the difference is a U.S.-made Cadillac shipped to Germany. Let me use this as a hypothetical example. Let's say it's priced at fifty thousand dollars to compete against uh, a Mercedes-Benz in Germany. You're hit at the border. Uh, at the German border with a 19% border-adjusted consumption tax. So you're at a 19% tax disadvantage over there. A U.S. company has to pay 35% corporate income tax, 7.65 employer portion of the payroll tax, and you're at a huge disadvantage there. The German vehicle or European-made vehicle coming into the U.S., they don't have to pay our corporate taxes. Uh, they don't have to pay a border-adjusted consumption tax because we have none. And by the way, they get a tax credit on their uh, business consumption tax back home. So what I favor is replacing the existing system, uh, which raises about $800 billion a year uh, in total, and, and which results in a lot of money being parked overseas and companies like GE paying zero on corporate taxes, replace it with an 8% border-adjusted business consumption tax, uh, which would apply to all goods and services coming into the U.S., and uh, all companies exporting would get a tax credit. It levels the playing field with our trading competitors and begins to reward capital investment equity and is an incentive to bring money home to the U.S. because capital investment would be allowed to be expensed against revenues on a permanent uh, basis. So I think that's the direction we need to go. It's a bold approach, uh, but it's one that is favored by really uh, Democrats like Fritz Hollings, the former senator from South Carolina, Jim DeMint, the current senator from uh, South Carolina, who's a Republican, Paul Ryan, a Republican from Wisconsin, and uh, Pat Choate, who ran for vice president with Ross Perot. This is this is an issue that I think can bring business and labor together and start bringing the jobs home to America, because the current system wa- works great for the uh, the leverage buyout artists, the private equity moguls, because debt is deductible, so it's an incentive to load companies up with lots of debt, leverage them, uh, flip the companies under under the proposal I'm laying out. It's really an incentive uh, for long-term uh, thinking and long-term business investment here in the U.S. Oh, I think that's a suggestion that uh, merits a qu- quite a bit of uh, careful study, and it makes a lot of sense. Uh, Chuck, what do you think? Thanks, Patrick. Thanks for joining us, Tom. I think that this is an issue that involves a change in the way the United States has done business that goes back probably to the maybe to the Kennedy administration, maybe to the last years of the Eisenhower administration. Uh, it's a change that accelerated with the assassination of John F. Kennedy and with Lyndon Johnson, who I think was a Wall Street creature and who began massive federal deficit spending. And basically what's happened is that our entire economy has shifted from one that was based upon national interest and industry and technology and to investment as a way of getting uh, leveling out of uh, financial dips in the market to one that is more oriented toward internationalism, one that is focused instead on the building of these massive colleges which started in the 1960s, 
where you had a, a quadrupling of the number of people in colleges, which is an informal form of unemployment, and which uh, college degrees were then shifted from those which were more practical in terms of getting into industry, getting into business, and, and moving into the areas like political science and social studies and other things that had more to do with not producing things, but sort of a service-type industry uh, where Americans kind of got very involved, particularly in an accelerated way, in focusing on examining their navels rather than making stuff. And I think that it's not something that's certainly unique to Obama, although he has inherited this gradual devaluing of the dollar and this huge increase in debt, which has gone to pay people not to work and reward people for not working, and at the same time exporting American industry. It's kind of like the old 19th century colonial British model, not the American model, which was more of a nationalist model. And now we're reaping the whirlwind from that. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. And what we've got is you've replaced, you've taken economic power, which once was in the hands of small businessmen and women, Main Street producers, uh, manufacturers, and put it in the, the hands of the Wall Street financial <laughs> engineers. And uh, uh, where's the value there? Even Paul Volcker has made some very interesting comments of, uh, you know, how, how do you really justify the kind of money these folks are, are making in terms of what kind of value is added to uh, to their work? And I, I argue rather than having the federal government control everything, change the way we uh, tax business to provide incentives again for the producers and let the flowers bloom. Don't pick winners and losers, but but uh, put a system in place that rewards investing in America. And I think all of a sudden you'll see a lot of those jobs coming home to America uh, just because of the tax reasons. Uh, look at those service jobs in India, for example. If all of a sudden you got a 8% tax on goods and services uh, operating over there, coming back into the U.S., whether goods from China or services from India, there's a real incentive to... Uh, Send the services home immediately uh, because uh, you control it better here in the U.S. And a lot of Americans are not comfortable when they have to deal with folks uh, in these other nations in these call centers. And secondly, on the product front, uh, we have much better control over quality. Uh, you've got real-time inventory. You've got you you deal with uh, some of the supply chain issues which have bubbled up and have. Uh, shown how risky it is to depend on uh, on manufacturers uh, way over uh, seas in Asia and finally for national security reasons do we want to be dependent upon China making an essential part uh, for a piece of equipment that is critical to our defense needs well it's because we haven't developed our own natural resources in this country I, I think that for example oil companies inside the United States that produce oil they should have to give 50% of their profits to the government. That's how it's done in, in countries like Italy. That's how it's, it, the Germans do it. Instead, what we've allowed them to do is uh, make enormous amounts of money by buying up overseas companies very cheaply and then dumping products on the United States. As I said, it's the old English colonial model. It's not They're not producing anything in our nation, for our nation. You know, We're not, in a sense... Uh, owners of our own house, you know. I mean, in a way, I, I suppose I almost sound like a liberal here, I guess. Well, these are not really conservative versus liberal because I hate to say some of my conservative friends inside the Washington Beltway are drinking the Kool-Aid of 
free trade is this sort of yeah. absolute good. And the, the, the irony is there isn't a free trade. We're, France began putting in this border-adjusted consumption tax system in beginning in the 1960s. Other nations have, have followed on the heels of France, and we're on average at an 18% tax disadvantage with our uh, trading competitors. They've got what I call a stealth tariff. So the reality is we need to put a tax system in place that rewards investment as, as opposed to one that rewards debt. Uh, Tom, we're, uh, normally we take a break now, but I can push it back because this is a very good conversation. Do you have a few more minutes? Sure. Okay, continue on. Uh, Chuck and Mike, if you have anything to say, get a word in. Okay. Mike? Uh, yes, I was thinking earlier when Tom was mentioning the idea of so many young people out of high school being pressured almost to go to university or college because that's where the right path to a great job and high paying and so forth and so on. One of the aspects that I see in the local Boston area, having grown up as both a student, a parent, and now a grandparent, is that high schools are rated based upon a percentage, the best percentage of students who graduate and move on to these elite colleges, universities. The magic number is how many kids graduate and move on into that higher educational market, whether or not that's the best thing for the students in the school in the first place. And, Tom, I think that's what you're Mike, getting at. You're, Mike, you make a great point. I just was meeting with some people at lunch, and that, that subject uh, that you just uh, enunciated so well came up, and it is so true. And and we have it even in our state, the performance measurements, uh, the funding, uh, even the, the the counselors are evaluated on are you getting them into the elite schools, are you getting them into the universities, and and what you're doing in a way you're throwing away a bunch of other kids uh, who either wind up dropping out before they finish or aren't given the opportunity uh, to develop their God-given talents in the vocational and technical education fields. That's right. It's sort of a uh, a point of view that uh, the best way to do the right thing is not necessarily looking at a number of ways to get that great CEO job or the MBA, et cetera, et cetera, but, again, to raise the basic question for parents to kids, what is it that you as an individual might be best doing in life? And let me tell you, the skilled trade jobs are paying uh, a lot better than uh, than kids who graduate with a four-year general education degree and try to find work. Those with skilled trades and occupational certifications that they can get after high school and maybe a year or two in uh, community college, uh, those allow them to get very good-paying job, uh, uh, jobs. I was just down at the Craft Training Center in Corpus Christi, Texas, and a, a young man down there came from a, dif a dysfunctional family, uh, came into this welding program, uh, really caught, uh, caught on. Also, he began to improve his uh, academic skills, particularly in the mathematics areas. He saw the relevant relevance of it after working with his hands. Uh, did well in welding and uh, got his high school degree and a certification. He's making $1,700 a week, which is a lot of money uh, in Texas for a kid with a high school education, but he's got a skilled trade and an industry-certified uh, uh, credential uh, showing that this is a guy who went through a rigorous program 
and is is knowledgeable. And so I I think I think uh, we've got to wake up to this issue. And again, it's not a partisan issue, but it's out there. And I recommend you might want to have gentlemen on your program sometime. Matthew Crawford, who's written a marvelous book, Shop Class to Soul Craft. The value of working with one's hands, and Matthew is—it uh, was excerpted in the New York Times Sunday section. I've had him speak a couple of times down at the Texas Workforce Commission. Uh, this is a, a, a young man who uh, worked his way all through college uh, as an electrician helper first, and then as an electrician. Uh, wound up getting a Ph.D. in philosophy at the University of Chicago, and uh, currently runs a motorcycle repair shop in Richmond, Virginia, and. Uh, just caught on to this notion of where is the self-sufficiency that we used to take for granted and the value of working with one's hands because I think there's also this sort of subtle elitism out there that the so-called blue-collar jobs or jobs where you work with your hands are are less, you know, less acceptable than, you know, getting that university degree. Charles Murray in his book uh, Coming Apart points out the same thing and he also notes that we're becoming a very separate nation in that the people who work with their hands um, don't talk to the people who don't work with their hands. And it used to be that almost everybody at some point in their life worked with their hands. It's not true any longer. And I think that's a great loss. I know uh, I did. I put myself through school uh, that, that way, too. And uh, So I, I take you up on your suggestion. I do have a final question for you, sure. and that is, is the Texas legislature going to shift resources to areas such as community colleges or trade technical colleges or increase those resources? I, I I hope they do. In fact that's what I'm I'm working with a coalition of people to move in that direction. We fell into this trap of uh and really the influence of, of Sandy Cress and if you look at the Bush Kennedy No Child Left Behind bill uh, that was passed during the Bush administration. You know, Sandy was one of the architects of that bill, and implicit in there is this notion of we've got to push everybody, you know, encourage everybody to go to a university. And that mindset has been very uh, prevalent here in Texas. It's beginning to change, and people are waking up, but it's going to be a real battle next time because uh, uh, the folks who uh, have been uh, encouraging this teaching to the test, I think, have been in control of the of the process in our state for quite some time, but I'm seeing a, an interesting coalition of business, of labor, uh, a lot of the educators who understand what's happening to the kids. The Hispanic community uh, uh, talked to a prominent Hispanic official and some Hispanic legislators who see uh, their kids dropping out of high school because ah, I'm not going to go to a four-year university, but they're not giving the opportunity for vocational and technical education. So I think uh, there's a real move in what I would consider the right direction, a different approach, because it isn't working. I mean, when you have the dropout rates you have in college and when you have the too many kids saddled with debt and don't have a, a, a real good job when they get out of school, something's wrong with the current system. Well, I agree with you very much, and I want to thank you for pointing that out to us. This has been a great conversation, Tom. Thank you very much for being with us today. Okay, thank enjoyed you, it. Thanks for having me. Tom okay. Hawkins, Chairman of the Texas Workforce Commission and author of Bringing America Home, and you can learn more about the Texas Workforce Commission and also uh, Tom's book at www.texasworkforcecommission.org. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll uh, finish up today's conversations. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. 
And we're back. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick, and today we have uh, Dean, uh, Deacon Michael Wanowitz with us. And uh, uh, a slight correction, the uh, the website for the Texas Workforce Commission <clears throat> is www.twc.state.tx.us. The, uh, the other email I, uh, website I gave you was actually for a nonprofit organization. So it's www.twc.state.tx.us. TX.US, and that will tell you about the Texas Workforce Commission, Tom Palkin. And also I recommend that you uh, check out his book, Bringing America Home. He's got some good ideas there. And Tom has a way, even though he's, re- he's a Republican and has been a Republican state chairman in Texas and worked in Republican White Houses, he has a way to, to find things, find solutions that uh, cross party lines or evaporate party lines. And I like that one. I don't know, Chuck, what did, what did you think of his idea about the consumption tax at the uh, – the American border and reducing corporate taxes and taxing uh, exporting jobs. Chuck, are you back with us? I am here, Patrick. And Mike, are you back with us? I'm right here. Okay. Sometimes it's a, there's a little bit of lag time when the when we push the buttons on the board and things happen. I was uh, saying that I liked. Uh, Tom's ideas. Tom has a knack for coming up with solutions that um, avoid party lines that uh, both liberals, conservatives, everybody can look at and say, you know, that makes a lot of sense. And I thought what he was saying there made a lot of sense. What do you, what do you guys think? Uh, I oh, absolutely. Do, Patrick. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, I talked about, um, in a sense, the 1960s and the change in which our, our government did things in terms of moving from a more national model to a a more international model. I think it was a philosophy that you know was carried out by by a combination of the big 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 corporations along with uh, groups like the Council on Foreign Relations, which we talked about the other day, and internationalists and uh, and big uh, combines of power. You know what what used to be, be euphemistically called the liberal Eastern Seaboard establishment. And uh, their model for moving the country forward was uh, international to internationalize, to globalize, and to move, uh, in a sense, uh, jobs and uh, and production and capital accumulation to uh, to other countries. <laughs> um, and we're paying a price for that now. I think Tom is talking about he uses a fancy word for it, but he's talking about the reimplementation of tariffs. And that's become very unpopular because I, I think that in general the establishment view, the Eastern Seaboard establishment, they have supported causes and they have supported candidates, both Democrat and Republican, who are liberals and who are in favor of internationalism, who are in favor of this general uh, agenda that I think is, is typical of a more 19th century uh, British colonial model. It's not the American model. It's not the what used to be called in the 19th century by the Whigs, the American system. And as a result, you know, it's a great thing to talk about having young people go to trade schools now and to get trades, but there has to be policies on the state and national level that encourage businesses to create jobs which their trade uh, skills would be needed. Uh, You know, we need policies that create capital accumulation at home and um, not reward um, the export of American capital and American uh, industry. 
Yeah, I, I think we're, we're inching closer together on that one. And, uh, Mike, you made a really good point, and, and I hadn't thought about that. But in, in the rating of high schools, I know when I was looking for a high school for my daughter, that was the first thing we looked at was that, that, that college uh, matriculation number. And sure. I wonder, Mike, can you counsel people I know in, in your parish? I, I wonder if when you talk to parents about whether they want to go to the public school or the Catholic school or not, um, is it difficult for parents to accept something other than going to college as the result of a good high school education? Well, <clears throat> many parents tend to look at it this way, and of course the students also, that getting into college requires perhaps a lot of testing and, and, and as Tom was saying, you know, testing to the ex exam and so forth. The whole issue of looking ahead to go to college, why? To go to college for that degree, which opens the door to material success. And if you walk backwards to being in the high school, then the high school that gets great ranks, whether it be in Sharon or Walpole or any other town, they're often looked at as the best places to get the kids into these good elite, let's say Ivy League colleges, whatever, where there is this potential for getting that degree and then walking into Wall Street or walking into any other uh, field or becoming a doctor or a lawyer or what have you, and that's the key to success. But I think what's happened is, and I mentioned this uh, again when Tom was on the show, is that I think what we've done is marginalize too many people, uh, pushing them through a system that gets them into a university or a college, and that's probably in some cases just the wrong place for that particular person to be. But parents will look at it as almost a, um, a plum that, ah, my son got into ABC University, my daughter got into XYZ place, and it's a wonderful place to be. It might not be the best place to be for the kid, but it's part of that whole system. Well, I know, and Chuck, you probably have this conversation, too, that when parents get together, or you will have it, uh, one of the first questions they ask is, where is your daughter or son going to college, and where are they now? Right, of course, and I think that um, there are a lot of people who uh, probably should either shouldn't go to college, they should go to a trade school, or they, uh, you know, or they maybe should do some college, and um, they have college degrees now that don't really, um, really do much for them, and they have huge debts. I mean, in the case of my own daughter, I'm not going to deny that I think she should go to college because she happens to be a great intellectual, and uh, she can contribute that way. And plus, I hope she marries a man who went to college because that's, I'm not going to deny that. that but she takes so maybe I'm being hypocritical here. <laughs> takes after, definitely takes after her father. Um, I love I love the story of the, uh, the the man with the PhD in philosophy running the motorcycle shop, uh, mm. and and that that came up in an article I believe it was in Atlantic a couple of weeks ago, but I have to check on my facts on that one. Who pointed out that more and more we're we're seeing this divide that people who do have advanced educations uh, disdain working with their hands, mm. and it used to be that that blue-collar people could carry on the same conversations that college graduates did. In fact, they often got together and did so at dinner parties and hanging out a bar at the bar and, and what have you. But now we have this 
I don't talk to those people, or they can't talk my language, or whatever it is. Uh, and I think that's a problem in this country. And uh, I, I don't know what to do about well, you know, it. Patrick, but, I think that it used to be the case that um, <laughs> very, very successful people often didn't go to college. I mean, I think about, yeah. for example, Harry <laughs> Truman didn't go to college. Uh, you know, you had captains of industry. I don't think Henry Ford or or Carnegie or any of those guys. They didn't go to college. I mean, they or they Bill started Gates. working. Mm. Bill Gates. There you go. I mean, they started working in their field at a young age. They they apprenticed. They they were self-taught, and they built these enormous empires. And they didn't. There wasn't this sort of social stigma attached to it, um, you know. And I think that uh, perhaps the, the, it's the only way to really bring that back is for there actually to be opportunity in this country for another Henry Ford or another Bill Gates, and that's going to take some public policies that that are more nationalistic in nature, I think, <coughs> less oriented toward this sort of service industry country where people get these, these degrees in whatever, that, you know, something that's not particularly marketable, and they go to work for the government or they go to work for something that uh, isn't actually producing something. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but the emphasis being uh, more toward um, actual... I mean, like, for example, in 1957, you know, Eisenhower dealt with a minor recession by deficit spending, and, and by deficit spending, I'm talking about $4.5 billion. By today's standards, that's like would last for two days. But the, but the idea, right? I mean, and, and, he brought right. The economy, and he brought the economy back within a year and a half. And, and, and the, the emphasis at the time, if you look at the rhetoric, was that we can build our way out of this recession by investing in American infrastructure. John F. Kennedy, investing in NASA. Investing in space in the space uh, movement, you know these were things that in which they built stuff. They actually invested in the American infrastructure, rather than just this massive creation of debt. I think that it, a lot of that started with Johnson, now with Kennedy's death when he spent a trillion dollars on welfare. In other words, you know, it's not a matter of helping poor people who fall through the cracks. It was a matter of paying people not to work. And also the proliferation of these enormous colleges. I mean, I, I'm sorry, but it's a form of unemployment. And the degrees changed. The nature of the education changed from one where people actually learned how to run corporations and how to create things to degrees in, you know, the, the, the social networking of the middle medieval, you know, whatever. I, I don't know. Or, or to uh, MBAs, right, in many cases. Well, the emphasis went away from that. The, the case studies at Harvard, there's a good book about that, actually about my life at Harvard Business School. Yeah. Harvard Business School in the late 1960s and 70s changed their entire model toward one that was more oriented toward behaviorism and, and as opposed to, you know, actually learning how the system works and how to, uh, you know, go out and, and create something as a captain of industry. I mean, there was a change in philosophy, I think, in our education. It's sort of the, the so-called frontier thinkers. Well, and and that a, coincided with public policies that drove capital overseas. We're not a frontier anymore, but I would point out that many of those MBAs, those, those new MBAs as you talked about, wound up being consultants, which, of course, don't make right. anything. And they also wound up being uh, investment bankers and, and uh Fund managers, which of course don't don't uh, make anything, and in some cases do exactly. a lot of destru destruction. So, uh, I would argue uh, for uh, in increased uh, emphasis on trade tech. And my dad taught at uh, Los Angeles Trade Tech, 
<clears throat> and even though he didn't get a high school degree, he taught himself engineering and then was able to teach other people. So I would I would start start there and also more apprenticeships. And uh, We're running out of time. We are out of time. So I want to say uh, that uh, you've been listening to Fairness Doctrine uh, to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. And we'll be back tomorrow with the uh, same time, same station. I want to say good night to uh, Chuck and good night to Mike. Thank you, Patrick. Good night, everybody. And good night, <coughs> good night to night all our listeners. Mm-hmm. And, and don't much. forget to check out our website at fairnessradio.com for blogs, photos, and petitions for causes you believe in. And also sign up on our Facebook uh, page and our Twitter feed. So good night, everybody. See you tomorrow, same place, same time. Mm-hmm. All right. Good night. <laughs>